Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Start closer to home today with the new sales tax on used cars in British Columbia. This one kind of flew under the radar in the budget this week. So here is the deal on this. Starting this fall, if you buy a used car in a private sale, the sales tax now will be charged on the actual sales price that you pay or the government's estimated value of the car, whichever is higher. The government says they're closing a loophole here. Too many people putting in fake receipts when they buy a used car to avoid pro- avoid the provincial sales tax. Oh, we can't have that. The tax man's going to come and get you here. Have a listen to this. And I talked to Liberal leader Kevin Falcon about this issue on the show this week. Here's what he had to say. What taxes are going up here? Well, the one that really, really offends me is the one on used car sales. You know, they're going after people that if you get a good deal and buy a used car and get a pretty good price, the NDP saying, well, that's not good enough. We're going to use the average selling price of that used car and charge you on that higher amount. And this really hurts low-income folks the most because they're the ones that are usually buying used cars. And, and so I think that's a real hit. They're also expanding their is that, is that a brand Is that a brand-new tax? Absolutely it is. Okay, all right. Let's discuss now with my guest, Chris Sims, BC Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hi, Chris. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. Okay, what do you think about what the government's doing here? Like, the government told me yesterday that, oh, we're closing a loophole here, and other jurisdictions are doing the same thing. We're, we're just catching up to other provinces here. A lot of people were avoiding the sales tax on, on used cars, so we, we gotta get, we gotta get people, get these taxes coming in when people buy a used car. Your thoughts? Well, it's just gross. It sounds like they want to sink their fangs ever deeper uh, into the necks of taxpayers. And Mr. Falcon was right. Uh, It's usually very low-income people, struggling families, who are trying to shop around for the best deal they can find on a used car. And what this government is essentially now saying is, we don't believe you. That you right, got this yeah. good deal on you got this good deal on this car. We're going to nail you as hard as we can with a PST. This is what this form of a taxation is on a used vehicle. I have to stress this vehicle was already sold probably many times over. It's already had the sales tax applied to it. It's actually one of the dirty little secrets about British Columbia is that we hit people with PST on used items. That includes if you're going to Value Village and you buy, you know, a couch and a lamp and some clothes and stuff and some books, you're paying PST on that stuff. It's all used. It's all people who are trying to make ends meet and save money, but they're getting nailed with PST. And the thing with the used vehicles and private sales, that's the worst tax bite. Because if it's a private sale and it's a used vehicle, the PST is 12%. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, okay. Say you've, um, you know, pinched and saved and you've saved up, you know, $10,000 for like a Toyota Camry, right? Right, Maybe a 2010. They're going to nail you with $1,200 extra with this PST. And now they're saying, 
by the way, not only will it be $1,200 extra, if you manage to get a really good deal because you've worked hard to find one, we won't believe you, and we're going to nuke you at the highest tax we can find. They need to roll this back. Okay, so it's kind of like, let's say you're a shrewd negotiator, okay, and and you get a great deal on on a used car, or maybe you buy the car from a neighbor, a friend of yours, gives you a, a break on the price. Yep. You know, you will not pay the tax on the price that you pay you will pay the the tax on the government's estimated value of that car whichever one is higher of course right whichever one is higher now the reason they're doing this chris is they're saying well there's a loophole people were cheating the system here like if you buy a car let's say you you buy a car from someone for ten thousand dollars and then the buyer says well i'll i'll just write the receipt up for five thousand okay and, and that way you'll pay less tax. I mean, we know that kind of stuff goes on, right? Well, we know that people find good deals on things. Yeah, I know, but people do, there there are people do who do cheat the tax man. Is let's, this, let's not let's not kid ourselves, right? But is this such a critical problem of people trying to save yeah. money on used cars for goodness sake that they need to go after poor people? With all of the things going on right now, with all the overtaxation, with the money laundering allegations, all the big time high roller stuff, they're going to go after the person saving a couple thousand dollars on a used car. (laughs) How is this the affordability government? Yeah, the other thing. The other thing I wonder about is, okay, the government is saying we are going to charge you tax now on what we decide is the the value of this car so how are they going to do that like are they going to have some new bureaucracy or office of used car evaluators that come up with (laughs) this is this is what we this is what we think the value of this car is like or is there some sort of universal easily accessible system or or book they can grab that, that shows the value of these used cars and they'll use that Actually, in my spare time, I like looking through AutoTrader. I don't know why. (laughs) I don't need a car. Um, It's just something I like looking through because I like doing valuation. I like seeing what people are buying, good deals, that stuff. And there's something called a blue book, you know, in in colloquial terms. People refer to it as a blue book. And that is what, you know, the standard, you know, cost of your vehicle, whatever it is, um, should be around that. So they'll probably use that and then add a whole big extra bit, bit of bureaucracy onto it and then add a markup. And then go from there. So this, it's, it's really disappointing. You know, these folks were elected on the idea of affordability, and they're going after the poorest among us. And it isn't just the NDP. I have to let you know that the British Columbia has been hungry and vicious for the PST for years. Way back years ago, under the B.C. Liberal government, they noticed that British Columbians were wisely timing their big uh, appliance purchases for their summer road trips to Alberta, which, of course, has no PST. So smart families would wait to buy that washer-dryer. They'd wait to buy that dishwasher, and they'd buy it in Calgary or Red Deer or whatever, and then drive it home. The government wanted that money so bad, Mike, that they reached out to big box stores like Costco and said, send us pictures of the driver's license plate. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and I... of course, the, gov- the, the company rightly told the government to go fly a kite. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is a good example. They will come after you no matter what for okay. PST. All right, welcome back. Talking about this new sales tax on used car sales in BC for private sales. Uh, lots of calls on this one. Chris Sims is my guest. Paul and Burnaby on the open line. Hi. 
Yeah, uh, what I don't get is, I, like, I just bought a, a used Dodge Caravan 2005 for my renovation business. Now, I got it cheap because it was beat up, it was rusting, there's dents on the door, not, but it didn't matter to me. So, you know, I mean, it was $2,000, but I'm sure the Blue Book value would show it around 6000 so I, I don't get that. Well, How, that's do that's know? the thing. Like, yeah, that's a really good point. So, what about the condition of the car? Like, what if the car is like a you know beat up Bondo buggy, like the first car I bought, full of <laughs> holes and rust, paid two hundred bucks for it? Like, like what if it's a hunk of junk car, Chris? Well, then they're going to have to get the agents of the state out there to do an inspection on your car. No, and do an no. Oh yeah, that'll be great, right? We can pay for that. <laughs> well, I mean, there, there's got to be some. Some consideration for the condition of the car. No, no otherwise that'd get too um, difficult, right? It's the I same as when you're, you know, get it, say you're getting ICBC insurance, right? You have to say yeah. what the make and model of the car is. They don't say, are there holes in the floor? <laughs> like, they don't ask that. Yeah, no, it is. It will be, ju- it will be based on the average, average value. Yep. Average value of the car. So it doesn't matter if it's, if it's a hunk of junk beater of a car. It'll be the average value of that make and model of car. Uh, Ke- Ge- uh, who do we got here? Gary in East Van. Hi, Gary. Go ahead. Good morning. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say that there's two main problems. Our first problem is we don't have enough people in this province that during voting time get off their bloody butts and go and vote. Mm-hmm. The second thing that I'd like to say is it's our fault again because of the outrageously low quality of persons we have allowed to slither into our political gangs in this province. This is unbelievable. I've never seen somebody who could talk three ways out of the side of their mouth at the same time. Okay, Gary, thank you for that. I, I hope that was therapeutic for you and you got it off your chest, but it's, it is a little off topic. Kevin in Vancouver. Hey, Kevin, go ahead. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Um, so first off, I wanted to say thank you for uh, for you and your guest advocating for uh, for us poor schmucks out there that don't have lobbyists. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't have anybody that we pay. We don't have a big group. Um, so so this is good that you guys have it on. Um, my main thing is, is that this is going after low-hanging fruit. Rather than cleaning up, uh, you know, money laundering, which is hard, uh, they say, hey, you know what, hey, let's tax people that can't do anything about it, and we'll just keep taxing this this vehicle over and over and over again. And so it's it's lazy. Well, I guess it is. Well, I guess you could certainly argue it's a bit of it could be a tax grab. The other thing I wonder, though, Chris, is that this can't be a lot of money. Uh, I mean, I I wonder how much tax avoidance the government really thinks is going on out there that they feel this is worthwhile. Go ahead. I actually have an FOI that I'm waiting on uh, to find out how much money they pull in on used vehicles and used items in particular, because we have a petition. We don't think there should be PST on anything that's used because it's Because you've already paid it. Yeah. yeah, So you pay, you pay the PST the first time you buy it when it's brand new and that should be it. You you think, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because now if it's used and now you pay the PST again, Nathan and Langley. Hi, Nathan. Go ahead. Hey guys, this is just typical socialist overreach. Um, I bought a used vehicle just yesterday. Um, I paid only $3,000 for it, but it's a project vehicle. Mm-hmm. In the blue book, it's probably valued around six or $7,000. Um, you know, sort of what's next? Are they going to take a, a brand new car that's on sale, for, but it's last year's model and it's $20,000 off? Oh, no, no, no. You know, we're going to tax you on last year's price. This is what happens. This is identity politics. This is, you know, government overreach to the extreme. And you can't have it. Well, I mean, we, John, 
Okay, okay, thanks for the call. Well, Chris, the government told me yesterday that this is not some new radical idea that they just dreamed up, that other provinces are doing the same thing and BC's just catching up. Your thoughts? Who cares if other provinces <laughs> are doing it? If it's a bad, mean, dumb idea, that doesn't mean you should mimic it. Like, that's one of the silliest things I've ever heard. Um, this, uh, seriously, speaking out, reaching across the aisle, so to speak, to my NDP friends, this is not your thing, okay? Going after people who are low income, who are trying to save a buck on a used car, is not uh, where you want to be. They need to walk this back. It's completely unfair. We'll see if they do. Jeff in Vancouver. Hi, Jeff. Go ahead. Uh, yes, good morning, Mike. Uh, just to paraphrase what some of your uh, earlier callers said, I agree 100%. Like I say, if I'm trying to sell my vehicle, then it's, you know, it's worth $5,000, but I have $2,500 worth of mechanical work that needs to be done. Um, I mean, how am I going to sell my vehicle then? Because nobody's going to buy it. Because of what? Because they'll have to pay tax on the higher value, you mean? Well, that's right. I mean, yeah. what the government's going to do, they're going to go blue book right across the board because they don't have any other mechanism to, they just don't have the, the, the resources and wherewithal to look at each individual cell. And I'm sure there's people fudge numbers. I mean, but you're yeah. making a mountain out of a mole here, here. Yeah. Like I'm sure there are people who, you know, all right, I bought this car for 10,000 bucks, but I'm just going to put in a fake receipt and say, well, I only paid 2000 bucks for it and pay less tax. Like, like, I don't think we should kid ourselves. I think that's going on. But I just I just wonder about the scale of it. Hey, 30 seconds, Chris. Go ahead. Exactly. It's the scale. Yeah. And to the yeah. point where we want to start nailing people for this, it's fundamentally unfair. Um, I would plead right. with people to phone your MLA. Phone All them. Right. Let them know it's unfair. Chris, thanks for coming on. Thank you. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the battle for autism funding now. BC parents of autistic kids fighting to hang on to the direct per family funding for autistic children. The NDP government says they are phasing that system out. Let's discuss now two great guests for you. Roxanne Black is a parent advocate. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. Love your show. Thank you, Roxanne. Thank you for being here again. Gene Lewis is also on the line, co-founder of Medicare for Autism Now. Hi, Gene. Good morning, Mike. Okay, I know you guys have been fighting fiercely to hang on to this funding model, and I know you were hoping that maybe there would be some good news in the budget this week. Roxanne, what was in there? Well, it doesn't look like it's good news for families uh, with children with autism. Mike, right. our kids have a neurological disorder diagnosed by a medical doctor, and right. there's a treatment called ABA, right. Applied Behavior Analysis. The funding allows parents to provide treatment to their kids. There's 21,000 kids in BC receiving autism funding. That's one in 38 as of yeah. December 31st. The NDP wants to transition into hubs, and we know they don't work. Look at Ontario. Why would Horgan's government want to copy a policy failure? And we all agree, my parents, caregivers, advocates, the Liberals agree that this government cannot be doing this for any reason that's tied to the well-being of children. Okay, let me go to Jean. Jean, your thoughts? Well, I have sort of a, a long history in this, uh, Mike. I was one of the litigants over 20 years ago that sued the provincial government over this very issue. ABA, or Applied Behavioral Analysis, is uniquely effective treatment for autism, and it wasn't provided through our health care system. So a group of parents, after much you know, lobbying and, and trying to persuade government, were driven into the courts by the that NDP government at the time, and we sued successfully, and the courts found that ABA was uniquely effective, it was medically necessary, 
and the government had an obligation to provide it. So rather than provide the money initially, what they did is, guess what? They tried to set up hubs. This is like in 2000. And through very effective advocacy, they said, no, don't provide hubs. Provide individualized funding so parents can go to the marketplace, choose the service provider that fits best with their kids' needs, purchase the service, and everyone, everyone succeeds. So that's how individualized funding came to be. It was basically out of a lawsuit. It was very specific to autism. And further, it was very specific to a particular treatment. You see, what's happening now, Mike, the government is basically redistributing autism funding across all of the spectrum of disabilities, which is nonsense. Um, Autism is very unique from other disabilities in several ways. I mean, it's a highly complex disorder. Uh, There's many coexisting conditions that go along with it. And the prognosis for autism after diagnosis, unless kids get early intervention, is very bleak. It does not improve with age. It worsens over the lifespan. I I really respect the work that you're both doing here because I I know uh, parents who have autistic children and, yeah, they're very worried about this funding possibly being reduced for their kids. I guess what... It's not only going to be reduced, it's going to be eliminated by 2025. Well, you would still have access to this hub model, though, right? I mean, the government says they they want to bring in this one-stop family system for for all neurodiverse children, as they're known. That mean? That's just government bureau speak. That's just nonsense. And people are absolutely foolish to believe that. Hmm. These hubs are going to be nothing more, let me tell you, than expensive babysitting. There will be no one there with any expertise to design, let alone implement, intensive behavioral treatment for kids with autism. Mm-hmm. This one-size-fits-all, how regressive is that? Think about that. You get diagnosed with a physical illness, are you thrown into the hospital and, oh, you've got diabetes, well, let's treat you for cancer. Come on. This is, we're going back 100 years in our thinking of this. Roxanne, your, your thoughts on this, this model the government says they want to move to, they say they want to move to these, these one-stop family hubs where families of neurodiverse children can get funding and support. So I'm thinking that that would include like families with other neuro neurodiverse conditions, right? Like Down syndrome, fetal alcohol syndrome. Is that correct? Um, I guess that's the, the plan. Um, yeah. The thing is, though, we're left in the dark as we really don't know what the plan is. And parents are asked to sign non-disclosure agreements um, by Mitzi Dean uh, when um, being a part of a committee deciding what's going to happen, the fate of our children. You know, my Jean and I both have um, children who are very affected with autism, very yeah. affected. So yeah. I can't imagine bringing him into a center with his severity of autism and being with everyone else and having that work. You know, I stretch every dollar of that direct funding. I hire, I train, I, you know, um, in, in my home, I do all of that work. How much, do you, so how, much do you, how much do you get right now under the current system? Well, right now we've just aged out of the autism funding system. Yeah. Um, and thanks to Jean and that lawsuit back in the early um, 90s, we were able to have that funding throughout 
school and, and high school. And I don't know where we would be today without Jean Lewis and the help that the funding has given us over the years. You know, Reed is 19 now. He's, he is very effective with autism, but he lives a full life thanks to that treatment that we were able to provide to him all these years. Right. And that, you know, that 22,000 uh, when he was first diagnosed, I stretched that. You know, you would never get the treatment hours at a hub facility that I was able to do in my own home for the last 17 years. Right. And just going back to Gene Lewis for a second, Gene. So, you know, that $22,000 of funding for an autistic child, is your fear that whatever funding parents are able to get under this new system, it would be potentially le- a lot less than that? Is well, they're not going, as of 2025, they're not going to provide individualized funding anymore. Right. That's the whole point. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, here's, here's the thing to, to understand up front. What we're talking about is eliminating treatment funding and moving yeah. all this to, into these support services that have proven to have uh, no efficacy to remediate the symptoms of autism. And it's not about other disabilities. Other disabilities need what they need. Yeah. Uh, you know, whatever those children need, they need. Our kids... This is very specific. There's 60 years of data and evidence and many court orders and through all sorts of jurisdictions that show this is the most effective thing that can be done. So this, this move actually is jeopardizing the health care of kids. Let's keep in mind, this therapy was called medically necessary. Now they're going to get rid of it. Roxanne, what are your thoughts here going forward here? What is the next step for you? I know you guys are not going to back down on this. Where does it go next? We're, we're long in the tooth, Gene and I, Gene, Gene longer <laughs> than myself. But, you know, we're going to do whatever it takes. We're not going away. We're not going to let this happen. And we're going to continue on. It's our kids. Can I answer that question? Why don't sure. you ask us, why is MCFD doing this? What, what would be your answer to that? Why do you think they're well, doing it? several theories, but there's one that's very, very, uh, I think, relevant. Yeah. MCFD is in an existential uh they're having an existential threat to their existence. You know, very soon, uh, the, their file, like 60% of their clientele are Indigenous and First Nations children. And it was determined through the Children and Youth uh, Rep, and, you know, the evidence is pretty solid, how they have messed up looking after, looking and doing investigations into all sorts of abuse and, and things that have happened with kids in the Indigenous community, and, and the Indigenous are reclaiming that. They're going to reclaim the care and uh, oversight of their children, and so they should. They're going to lose 60% of their clientele. They are mm. in an existential threat for their survival. And okay. so how better to do this than to central all these services, centralize them all, create their own buildings, you know, give all these roles to their staff with no specific training. We turn our attention to a story closer to home, the housing crunch in Metro Vancouver. Now, we all know about the affordability crisis in real estate for home buyers, the price of homes skyrocketing to record levels, but it's not just the buyers feeling the pinch out there. Renters are also finding it's a jungle out there when it comes to finding a decent affordable place to rent let's discuss now with my guest amir ali already well known to our listeners 
for his work here at CKNW. Now, Amir is now a staff writer at the Daily Hive. Hey, Amir. Hey, Mike. Nice to talk to you. It's been a while. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And uh, I really enjoyed the article you wrote for the Daily Hive. I'm looking at the headline, I'm trying to rent a place in Vancouver, and it feels like the Hunger Games. So let's talk about that. What is it? It's a jungle out there, right? Yeah, I heard you say that uh, while you were introducing me. And it, and really, it really does feel like a jungle. You sort of touched on it in the intro that, you know, the housing, housing affordability crisis is well known to anyone that lives in the region. But it's, it's equally as bad for renters, if not worse, because they have so little power uh, when it comes to finding a place to rent. And there's so many variables involved in that. Okay, so you're trying to find a place to rent right now. Are you still looking? Still looking, yeah. And we've kind of given up hope on uh, March 1st, and now we're going to be turning the, our attention to April 1st, hopeful. Okay, what's it been like out there when you look around? Like, you're looking on, like, Facebook, Craigslist. Like, where are you finding, how do you find a place to rent in Vancouver these days? So if you read my story on dailyhive.com, that's one of the first things that I go into, is the fact that there are so many different places to look for a place. So as you mentioned, there's Facebook Marketplace, there's Craigslist, and as a lot of our listeners are probably aware, there's tons of fake ads on Craigslist that you have to sift through. There are these more sort of verified places. Uh, I mentioned live.rent as one of them that requires both renters and landlords to verify. Um, so we've looked through all of these places, but it, it kind of sucks that there's no sort of singular regulated place for renters to go to look for a place. Yeah, I've talked to people about some of those fake ads that are out there for places to rent. Like a lot of these are scams, right? Like are you finding uh, a lot of scams and, and fake fake ads out there? For a while I did. Um, I just honestly, I don't even look at crisis anymore just because of how much crap you have to sift through on there. So uh, we have found that Facebook Marketplace tends to be pretty good um, but then that comes to the next problem. We, you know, you find a place that looks nice and then you go to view the place and now you're competing with, you know, nine or 10 other individuals or couples that are looking for the same place. So now you're dealing with that competition, um, which adds a whole new set of problems to, to sort of jump over. Yeah. And what are the places like typically that you go to see or some of them, are they nice? Are they dumps? I mean, what is, what's the quality like out there? Uh, hit, hit, hit or miss. Uh, so a few places that we've seen have been really nice. Uh, I did remember seeing one in New West that was that seemed too good to be true in terms of the price. And then, you know, we sort of took a tour around the building and saw maybe seven or eight mouse traps uh, set out for what we believe to be mice in the building. The person that we were talking to suggested that that wasn't the case, but it was kind of hard not to connect the dots there. Um, otherwise, the inflation has been pretty, pretty good overall. Okay, speaking to Amir Ali, staff writer at the Daily Hive, about the rental market in Vancouver right now. What are the rents like? Expensive? Yeah, so we've had to continuously push our budget. We initially wanted to try and find a place, you know, around fifteen, sixteen hundred uh, per month, but that's actually gone up to about eighteen hundred a month. Which, you know, uh, I'm I. I I'm not uh, a rich person. I'm a, I would consider myself having a middle-class income. And there's not really a ton of spaces that are dedicated towards the middle class. Uh, I know that Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart has announced this making home project that is targeting middle-class people. 
but um, you probably know this, Mike. When they say affordable, that is so variable, and it really depends on who you are. If I was somebody that was working in hospitality, none of these places would be affordable to me. None of them. Okay, as you look around for a decent, affordable place to rent, Amir, do you find that, like, is it, can you look further out, out into the suburbs? I mean, how far are you willing to commute uh, to get a place? Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's been sort of the next sort of cog in this continuous machine. We've sort of set our sights now uh, closer to Surrey or Coquitlam. Um, I don't have a car, so I'm ideally looking for a place that's close to transit. And it seems like a lot of these places apply maybe some sort of transit tax to their listings because we've seen places that are near stations, maybe two to 300 more than similar places that are further away from transit. But yeah, we sort of lost, uh, we're not really looking at Vancouver anymore. It's more Coquitlam, Surrey, Burnaby, where places do tend to be a little bit cheaper. But again, they're still in that 15 to 1800 range for a one bedroom suite that isn't necessarily a large space. Okay, Amir, good luck with the search. I hope you find a place soon. It does seem like it's a really difficult market out there, to say the least. And we'll find out yeah. if other people are in the same boat here. Good luck to you, and thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot, Mike. Nice to chat with you. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's keep talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine now. My guest is Bill Browder. He is an international anti-corruption campaigner. He campaigns for human rights and justice in Russia. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show today. Bill, thank you for coming on. Great to be here. Bill, I'm very grateful for your time today on, on a dark day in, in Eastern Europe. Uh, your thoughts on Russia's invasion here? I think this is beyond our worst case scenario. Uh, this is the most dangerous thing that's happened in any of our lifetimes. And um, uh, I think we're just beginning to see the horror of what's going to happen with Putin's invasion. And it's just heartbreaking. Okay, is this what you anticipated? I had talked to an analyst on the show earlier this week who warned about potential bombing of Kiev. And I was like, really? He's going to bomb, he's going to bomb the capital? And, and then look what we see happen. So, you know, did, do you think that is this what you thought would happen? I didn't think this was going to happen. I thought, you know, Putin has been sort of, you know, playing both both sides. He's been a tyrant and he's also been a, you know, trying to be a member of the G8. He's been a, you know, murderer, but, but you know, attending international conferences. You know, he, he, he's, he's a guy who's been playing both sides. And, and by doing this, he completely goes over to the tyrant side without ever, you know, giving up on all this work he's done over 20 years to sort of bring at least some people from the West into his fold. Okay, we're seeing worldwide reaction with lots of countries announcing sanctions against Russia, the United States, the United Kingdom. Uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has just announced new sanctions. Will they be effective? Well, I think a lot of the sanctions um, that have been announced so far are strong. These are, yeah. these are powerful sanctions. But the question is, and it's a good question you just asked, do they hit the target? Right. And the, the target is, what does Vladimir Putin care about most? Does he care about a state-owned bank that's going to have its assets frozen? So, yes, maybe, sort of. But I'll tell you what he cares about a lot more than that is having his own assets frozen. And what, what all of these sanctions programs have not done yet is gone after his own assets. And the way you go after his own assets is by going after the 50 biggest oligarchs in Russia. And why these people are so sacred that they haven't been sanctioned it perplexes me because that is what would um, affect Putin. That's what would make him 
feel like there was a cost to what he's done and it hasn't been done. Speaking to Bill Browder, anti-corruption campaigner in Russia. Bill, let me play a clip here for you. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking a short time ago, announcing new sanctions on Russia, and then I'll get your thoughts. These sanctions will target 58 individuals and entities, including members of the Russian elite and their family members, as well as the Wagner Group and major (coughs) Russian banks, among others. We will also sanction members of the Russian Security Council, including the Defense Minister, the Finance Minister, and the Justice Minister. In addition, effectively immediately, effective immediately, we are ceasing all export permits for Russia and cancelling existing permits. Justin Trudeau speaking a short time ago with new sanctions on Russia. Bill Browder, what do you think of that? Would that be effective? Well, I, I, I like it, but, but I, I, again, I, as I said, um, where are the oligarchs? Um, yeah. He's, you know, the, the sanctioning the defense minister. That's good. It's symbolic. But he's not the he's he's you know, he's not the guy who has 20 billion dollars in his own name. That money is held in the name of these oligarchs. And we know who they are. Um, and and it, it's it's kind of almost perple- it's, it's confusing for a government official to understand that that the oligarchs are like major corporations, major Russian corporations. And those corporations are Putin's a shareholder. And, and that's why they, we have to go after these oligarchs. And, and we still haven't. And and. Until we do, um, you know, Putin is that's that's what Putin cares about. Yeah. Yeah. We see world powers lining up against Russia now and announcing sanctions. Is, is anyone standing with Putin here? Like have any major powers stood up and sided with Russia here? <laughs> yeah. The most major power in the world has sided with Russia, which is China. The Chinese government has said that they think that that um, uh, the U.S. has behaved immorally by sanctioning uh, Russia. I mean, it's it, they, they didn't they didn't have any comment about invading a unprovoked neighbor and, and killing innocent civilians, but they're pretty much worried about the sanctions that, that have come in reaction to that. So yeah. China is you know we we now have an axis of evil, a true axis of evil, uh, Russia and China. Yeah. So China has now come out in opposition to r- sanctions against Russia. They have called the U.S. action here immoral, as you mentioned. What is your analysis of that? The fact that r- r- China standing by Russia here. Well, China is going to be doing their own uh, similar activity once they see how this plays out, and that's going to be with Taiwan. And so this is really a, you know, our reaction to, to what, what Russia is doing doesn't just affect Russia and their future plans. It also affects China and their future plans and, and other tyrants that have other designs on neighbors. This is a very crucial moment in, in, in our lives and in, in history, which is, um, you know, do we come, come, come out tough enough? To, to send a message to all these bad guys that, that um, you know, bad things will happen if you do these type of things. Speaking to Bill Browder about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Bill, you're one of the world's leading experts here on, on Putin's motives and, and his operations. What, what is your analysis on, on his end game here? What, what is he trying to achieve, do you think? Um, the, the, the answer is that um, he's, his end game is to push it as far as he can. So there's two things about Putin you need to know is, one, um, he always escalates, and I've seen this with in, in my own experiences with him. He never backs down. He always escalates, um, and he, there is no uh, that he, he can he can never show weakness. So he escalates, and he can never show weakness. And so what it means is that he's got to keep on going after Ukraine. You know, it's Poland or or the Baltics, and he wants to see whether wow. NATO is for real. 
and and this and there's no way that that he can really back down the only way that we can stop him is just by with brute force is with you know incredibly crippling financial sanctions and potential military in, in intervention if he comes to nato okay so you think that you know he's already surprised people with the with the level of this incursion in ukraine today is a lot of analysts have been surprised that you don't think he's stopping at ukraine definitely not i think that this is just a stepping stone on his path to world domination this is the this is 1938 hitler sudetenland same exact comparable why, why do you think he's doing that because he's a guy who has been a dictator for 20 years um the, the russian people aren't inherently happy with him he's stolen all the money that, that should have gone to their education and health care and roads etc they're grumbling he can't blame it on anyone else because he owns it. He's been around for 20 years. Um, and so he needs to, to do something to prevent the people of Russia from overthrowing him. And, and so he goes to, to the dictator's playbook and pulls out the obvious thing to do, which is distract the people by starting a war. And that's what he's done. Yeah, we talked a lot today about the sanctions that are being rolled out by world powers against uh, Russia, the United States, the United Kingdom, Canadian sanctions. I had a caller on the open line earlier today, Bill, wondering if if Putin or his cronies have got financial interest uh, here in Canada. Do you, is that like how far do the, the financial sort of tentacles of these Russian oligarchs spread around the world? I mean, is there Russian influence in Canada in terms of economic holdings? Absolutely, hundred percent. I, I have a list. Um, it's mm. they're, they're in Canada, no, no doubt about it. Yeah, and what should be done about that? The assets should be frozen. Yeah, Bill, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. Let's keep talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine now. We've talked to many experts on the show here over the last couple of weeks about the situation, and many of them told us that Putin was ready to attack. Now, remember, it was just a week ago that the Russian president said that any predictions that he was going to invade and attack was hysteria. It was false information. Well, the predictions proved devastatingly accurate today. A pre-dawn Russian missile assault, long-range artillery deployed as well, Russian troops on the ground, casualty reports coming in. There's a looming refugee crisis now in Eastern Europe. The world is reacting. We had live coverage on the show today of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announcing new sanctions on Russia. The United Kingdom also sanctioning Russia. Our allies also punishing Russia. In the last hour, U.S. President Joe Biden reacted. Let's have a listen. We've now sanctioned Russian banks that together hold around $1 trillion in assets. We've cut off Russia's largest bank, a bank that holds more than one-third of Russia's banking assets by itself, cut it off from the U.S. financial system. And today, we're also blocking four more major banks. That means every asset they have in America will be frozen. Okay, U.S. President Joe Biden speaking a short time ago. Let's discuss now with my guest, Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, reached him in Ottawa. Andrew, thank you for coming on today. Hello, Mike, and thank you for having me on your show this afternoon. You bet. Thanks for doing it. What's your analysis of the, of the situation here? What, what do you think? Why is Putin doing this, and what do you think his game plan is here? What's his end game? Yeah, so the, the big picture is that um, Putin has been intent for a number of years, and I'll skip the, the details, but 
essentially to restore Russia as a great power, and that meant to stop NATO enlargement. He's been signaling that since 2007 with a famous speech at the Munich Defense Conference, and then a subsequent war with uh, Georgia in the summer of August 08. The culmination here is uh, that the West, from Putin's point of view, uh, ignored his requests, his pleas, he might say, to not push against the Russian borders with NATO enlargement. He sees this as uh, a contrary power establishment. He views the world not in the liberal rules-based order that you know our prime minister was talking about today at his press conference. This is about power politics, the traditional realpolitik. And uh, he is exercising the military option because his political option, which he had tried to do uh, with the Americans, to get a guarantee, a written guarantee that NATO would not expand to include Ukraine. The West refused to give him that guarantee. So he is extracting that guarantee in effect through military force now. That's what this is about. So he couldn't get it politically, diplomatically. He's now getting it through the use of military force. Okay, and now we're seeing the the world react here, Andrew, to the invasion. We've got Canada and our allies all promising sanctions on Russia. Now, let me play another clip here of U.S. President Joe Biden and get your thoughts. Here's, here's the president talking about the military impact of some of the moves here. Have a listen. Between our actions and those of our allies and partners, we estimate that we'll cut off more than half of Russia's high-tech imports. And we'll strike a blow through their ability to continue to modernize their military. It'll degrade their aerospace industry, including their space program. It'll hurt their ability to build ships, reducing their ability to compete economically. And it will be a major hit to Putin's long-term strategic ambitions. Okay, I thought that was really interesting there, Biden outlining the impact of some of these sanctions, including on the Russian military. Do you think these sanctions will be that effective? Well, they, they, they have the technical effect that the president was indicating, of course, but that is not to, for today. That, that is, a, as, as the president himself said, that is a longer-term impact. So yeah. it does not dissuade Putin from his actions today, and Putin would have known that these things were coming. The Americans were transparent about it, as, as were the Europeans and Canadians and so on. And so he decided that he would uh, take the pain of those sanctions, knowing they were coming, to get the short-term gain of uh, what he hopes will be a military political victory and uh, basically uh, bring uh, Ukraine into his fold. Now, the longer-term calculations, of course, nothing ends right away, is uh, where does China fit in? China has yeah. already publicly, from what I've seen, indicated that they are supporting Russia in this. Yeah. I mean, they have their Taiwan situation. So uh, now the Chinese economy is not as strong, their high-tech industry is not as strong as the West, but it is a, a reasonable capability. And so uh, how, much can that, how much can the Chinese buttress and, and offset the Western sanctions on, uh, on Russia? That remains to be seen. Do you, do you think China uses this opportunity to launch any kind of military activity of their own? I think the Chinese have their eye very carefully on the situation. They are monitoring it. Um, their their view on Taiwan is being, I think, refined by what they see on the Russian actions in in, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, the big difference, though, is that the Americans have a treaty uh, with uh, Taiwan uh, to defend it, uh, whereas the United States and NATO did not have it. Doesn't do not have a treaty to defend Ukraine, right. and there's a that's a critical difference because 
the Americans are by treaty obliged to come to Taiwan's assistance. So it's not exactly the same, although I'm sure the Chinese are picking up some lessons on how the Russians are uh, uh, doing this operation. They're doing a very, very interesting operation using special forces uh, to minimize actually casualties uh, on both civilians and military, and they are seizing key nodal points throughout all of Ukraine. And now the question, because, so they're in effect trying to paralyze the Ukrainian government and, and the military. And the question then becomes, how do they consolidate this? I mean, conventional forces are battling in certain, uh, certain areas along the border with Russia and Ukraine. But eventually, they're going to have to exercise greater control, not just with airborne units having seized key infrastructures and airports and so on. I mean, they have, they have a, they've seized a military airport very close to, uh, to Kiev right now. Right. which is controlled by the Russians, but they're isolated. So they're going to have to link up. So dynamic situation there. Okay, speaking to Andrew Rasoulis, Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and we see Canada and our allies all promising sanctions against Russia. Let me play a clip here for you, Andrew, of UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson speaking this morning, putting Putin on notice that this invasion must come to an end and get your thoughts on his comments here. Boris Johnson, have a listen. Our mission is clear. Diplomatically, politically, economically, and eventually militarily. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Okay, one of the things that jumped out at me there when he talked about economic sanctions, but you also heard him use the word eventually militarily responding. Is he talking about just supplying arms to Ukraine? Or could this yeah. could this uh, go in, become a, a wider shooting war in Europe? It's in no one's intention or interest to do that. Um, I'm not exactly sure what he, what, uh, what he was talking about. I think he, perhaps he was suggesting a uh, potential inadvertent war with NATO by accident. But uh, there is, uh, at present, there is, uh, it is illogical to assume that uh, Putin has any interest uh, or even military capability uh, to widen this war and take on NATO. That, that is just, I can't possibly see that. Uh, now, the training missions, uh, which NATO has been doing under the, under the Partnership for Peace uh, rubric, um, they're basically come to a halt because all of NATO's training forces, including Canada's co- uh, contingent of 200 plus uh, personnel, have all withdrawn. The Canadians specifically have withdrawn to Poland. So, uh, and we are in under these circumstances in no position to provide any training nor even assistance anymore because the airports have been uh, have been knocked out from what I can see from you know the open source TV reporting. So basically, uh, aircraft, foreign aircraft, uh, could not arrive now to supply them. So I mean, all that training assistance stuff is 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 over for the time being, as far as I can tell. Okay, Andrew. Last question for you: Do you think that? Putin pushes any further than Ukraine? Like, is this just a regime change mission to replace the Ukrainian government and then he and then he backs down? Or is there potential for this to widen? The, uh, the, I, I believe his immediate goal is that the regime change you spoke about, which would allow uh, him to reach his, uh, his key strategic objective uh, currently, which is to keep Ukraine out of NATO and in, in close uh, as a close client state uh, to Russia. Yeah. He will consolidate that, uh, and there will be great pain uh, from the economic sanctions thereafter. I believe there will be a long period of, of, of consolidation, 
And uh, although he may wish to have, for example, the Baltic states back into into greater Russia as they were in the Soviet Union and imperial Russia, um, I mean, that would be a, a, a bridge too far, I believe. And I don't I, I couldn't believe that the Ukrainian elite, that, I mean, the Russian elite that support Putin would, would be able to say, yes, we can do this. I think that they takes on NATO. It's a war with NATO. And I so I believe that he will consolidate and hold in the current position. Andrew, thank you for your analysis today. I appreciate it.